0: Thank you, Marion. This thing, I think, is just plain broken. Um, let me know if you have trouble hearing. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we consider your word this afternoon, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. Your spirit can do all things. It can comfort and convict. It can draw us to yourself. It can humble us. It can assure us. And we pray for the free reign of your spirit on our midst. To the end, that we might be drawn closer to you, that our church might build you up, and that the living God would be exalted and glorified, and that we would be better servants of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As most of you know, we've been doing a series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we're now at chapter 19. We're making progress. I think it was a year ago or so that we started off. We were in maybe um, chapter three. So uh, we are making progress and we're covering, I think, about um, maybe uh, a chapter every uh, two or three weeks. We come now to chapter 19 and I have titled it, and you should have a one-page outline as well as a, um, there's kind of a, a Coles Notes version here that is the outline of the sermon. And then uh, the 10-page dealie harks back to my days as a professor when I had the reputation of being called Chainsaw for the number of handouts that I gave. Uh, but there's material there that we'll be referring to as, uh, as time moves on. But the one page is going to be the most helpful thing, especially if you're on Zoom. And maybe that's all that you'll be referring to, depending on uh, how easy it is to switch back and forth. The title of today's sermon is Rethinking Divorce, Singleness, and children in the kingdom of heaven. Rethinking, divorce, singleness, and children in the kingdom of heaven. And the subtitle is, From Christian Congregation to Christian Home. From Christian Congregation to Christian Home. We have left chapter 18, and we're now in chapter 19. In chapter 18, Jesus was teaching on the Christian congregation, life in the church. And he was talking about this upside-down kingdom that he's been talking about all through the Gospel of Matthew. You want to be great, you need to be like a child. If you want to be at the top of the pole, you need to be the humblest in the crowd. Uh, And great concern is shown for watching out for the littlest of these my people. And you might remember that we watched an illustration from Elephant Man, where um, this poor gentleman in the 19th century uh, was badly deformed and was um, uh, in a freak show, but he was bestowed uh, dignity upon by none less than Queen Victoria. And that's the kind of idea that we have going on here. So I want to suggest that uh, rethinking divorce, singleness, and children in the kingdom of heaven, that in this passage, Jesus teaches three things that characterize the kingdom of heaven. Easy divorce is out, uh, verses 3 to uh, 9. Singleness is in. Even being a eunuch is in. The tie between being a eunuch and being single is a little bit odd, but I think it's meant to be provocative. And then once again, at the end of this section, there's a reminder about the importance of children. And here it's literal children that Jesus commends. So, are you uh, are you with me? The beginning of Matthew chapter 19, and I will probably be referring to the translation that I have uh, on the first page of your handout. I want to begin with uh, just kind of a, a homely illustration. I gave a, um, a talk this week on how to prepare a sermon, and as I was going through my notes, I was aware of how... Oh, many of the things that I was advocating, I wasn't actually doing when I was preaching. One of the things that it says is that when you give an introduction to a sermon, you should start with something contemporary rather than going right into the Bible. So here's a shot at it. Uh, Prince Harry, his book is called Spare. And it's made a lot of headlines lately. Our 38-year-old Duke of Sussex uh, kind of tells all in this biography of a royal member of the royal family. And it's proven to be provocative. Some people have found it to be riveting. And it brought back memories that many of us have of seeing these two young children line up with their father behind the coffin of Princess Diana. Such is a picture in that book of life in the royal family. Well, Why would I draw that illustration? Those of you who've been following closely might be able to put two and two together, it's this jesus is here talking about life in the royal family the royal family of the kingdom of god it was way back in um uh, chapter 16 when jesus revealed himself as the messiah that jesus began to turn the kingdom upside down he said you're members of a royal family but don't get me wrong you need to set your mind on the things of god not on the things of man And then Jesus introduces us to an upside-down kind of a kingdom where uh, insignificant children with no status are the most important, uh, where people who uh, fall between the cracks are the highest on the totem pole, the humblest is the most exalted, and the Father in heaven is watching over this royal family where there's a kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 19, we switch from uh, life uh, within the royal communal family to life within the royal nuclear family. So in chapter 19, Jesus has ended his uh, fourth of uh, five speeches, but the teaching continues. We've moved from, in other words, from uh, uh, speech to narrative. And in 19, one to 3, uh, we find in 19, one to 2, we find that there's a major transition. Matthew writes, and so it was, and I'm following the translation on the, uh, on the outline of your page, your handout here. And so it was that when Jesus finished these words, he departed from Galilee, and he went into the region of Judea across the Jordan, and hordes of people followed him, and he healed them there. We have a change of scenery, and it's an important change of scenery. Jesus is saying goodbye to Galilee. He's given two predictions of his passion in Galilee already. In the first one, he said it was going to be in Jerusalem, where he's headed. In the second one, it was while he was in Galilee that he talked about his suffering. And maybe the disciples had forgotten about the fact that they're headed to Jerusalem. But Jesus hasn't. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, and he's leaving Galilee. Now, for any of you who have been to Galilee, it's like cottage country. There's a wonderful lake there. People swim in the lake. They fish. There's lush land. Uh, lovely trees. Uh, It's quite picturesque. And um, it's a desert journey for Jesus and the disciples as they were heading south towards Jericho. And they probably crossed over to the other side of the Jordan, which is very desert-like, in order to avoid Samaria. So Jesus is, in effect, going from cottage country uh, to desert terrain on his way to death row. And over the next two chapters, we're going to discover that Jesus has some lessons for us as his disciples about following the path towards death row with him. It's this ironic kingdom where in order to be a member of it, you have to be willing to lose everything. To be top, you're on the bottom. You have to give away your life in order to be a member of it. Uh, It's very disturbing, but it's profoundly exhilarating, and it brings eternal life. So, we are a countercultural group of people. We think about things backwards. And that's the way Jesus teaches us to do it. So, we begin this week with a lesson on family, divorce, singleness, and children. And next week, it's on money the upside down kingdom in the context of the Christian home. So, after this introduction, Jesus is on his way. And then we have three scenes, a scene involving divorce, a scene that leads to a discussion of eunuchs, and a scene that involves discussion of children. I want you to notice when you look at each of these paragraphs, there's kind of a lesson here. I couldn't help but notice that when you look at verses 3, which introduces paragraph 2, verse 10, which introduces paragraph 3, and verse 13, which introduces paragraph 4, they all begin with a mistake. As we talk about divorce this afternoon, we're going to admit to mistakes Uh, some of us in in the the congregation are divorced and if we're not we certainly have friends or family members who are and uh it's uh it's often uh, a painful situation to talk about but i i want to begin by just noticing that in the beginning of each of these paragraphs somebody makes a mistake the pharisees come up to jesus testing him about divorce and jesus turns it into a lesson for our worth in verse 10 his disciples say to him if this is the case with a man and a woman, it's better not to marry. Very cynical attitude towards marriage there. It's probably one that uh, maybe the disciples were sort of joking like guys do, you know. Uh, well, you know, uh, marriage seems to last uh, a lifetime and beyond. Uh, that You can sort of complain about marriage or something. Jesus takes that and turns it into a significant lesson on singleness. And then in the fourth paragraph, the disciples get it wrong again, and they rebuke these children and turn them away. But Jesus turns that into a lesson on children again. My friends, somebody has summarized uh, the Bible as follows. What God creates, human being distorts. What human beings distort, God redeems. So here are three cases where there is a distortion that Jesus redeems and turns into our benefit. So let's begin by looking at the first one then, which is easy divorce is out. A trap becomes instruction on marriage and divorce. Now, the Pharisees and Jesus are involved in kind of shorthand here. And so it's important to note what the background is. The disciples are not so much asking about whether it's permissible for a man to divorce. They thought it was. The question was whether you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. And so in verse 3, we read, and the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever? Now, they've got Jesus in his trap here. John the Baptist has just paid with his life for uh, drawing lines about marriage and divorce uh, when it came to uh, a ruler of the land. And divorce was really, really popular in the Jewish world. Uh, First-century Jews had decided that uh, divorce was pretty much a matter of ease, basically. Um, There were two schools. There was a a liberal school and a conservative school, if you want to use those terms. Uh, The conservative school said that you could divorce your wife on the grounds of um, sexual immorality. There had to be some kind of an indecency that was uh, fairly major. Uh, but the school of Hillel was a whole lot more popular. And they said, men, you can divorce your wives for any reason. And I've got in the, on page 10 a, a, a segment even from the, from the Mishnah, if you want to look at it. Uh, the Mishnah is a, a codification of Jewish law. And you'll see on page 10, about halfway down the second last paragraph under the heading of Mishnah, the school of Hillel says, he may divorce her even due to a minor issue. Uh, for example, because she burned or oversalted his dish, as it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her, meaning that he has found any type of shortcoming in her. <clears throat> so, uh, married women, um, if you put too much salt in dinner, um, a divorce uh, could well come your way. Rabbi Akiva even goes so far as to say if you find somebody better looking that you'd rather have all you do is write your wife a certificate of divorce you give it to her and that's her that's her exit card and you can go on and uh, and marry somebody else because she didn't find pleasure in your eyes what an oppressive situation for women and what an easy out for men marriage was cheap divorce was common does it sound familiar when I was in China in 2010, I was teaching in a seminary, and the question that the Chinese had of me as a, as a Western Christian was recurrent. I hear that in Canada and in North America, Christians divorce. And they just, what's with that? They had heard about how common it was. I was interested this week to look at the statistics for um, Canada statistics, and uh, the divorce rate in China in the past 10 years has quadrupled. So the Chinese are catching on pretty well and they're, 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 they're keeping up with us and oddly enough, in fact, in Canada, the divorce rate is among the lowest in the Western world, the highest are Russia, followed by the United States and Sweden. Divorce is an easy thing some people even talk about you know your, your starter bride you know you're you, you, you have a starter home. It's a little home, and then you move up. So you've got your your starter wife or your starter husband, and then you cash them in and and, and, uh, and, and move up the scale. In response, Jesus says, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created made them from the beginning, male and female? So Jesus goes right back to Genesis 1 in verse 4, and then he goes to Genesis 2 in verse 5 because genesis 2 actually talks about marriage and in verse 5 jesus cites genesis 2 i think it's verse 23 it might be 22 for this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh then jesus drives home the point thus they are no longer two but one and then he says what therefore god has yoked together let no human being keep dividing and he puts that in the present tense, as if to say, folks, there's a problem. The horse is, uh, is out of the corral, based on Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Which, by the way, the disciples and the Pharisees got wrong. They say in verse 7, and here's where they try to trick him, because they know they've got him. Jesus is probably going to take a hard line on this, but we got this passage from Deuteronomy, and we're going to nail him. Then they jump on him. Why, therefore, did Moses command a husband, verse 7, Grant a certificate of divorce and divorcer. Well, when you actually look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, it doesn't command divorce at all. It does permit it. It's as though, um, you know, in in, in pastoral situations, there's a recognition even in ancient Israel that um, Moses was trying to contain the situation by saying if if a woman is divorced, she should at least have a certificate of divorce so that that her status can be tracked. But then Jesus says in verse 8, and we've seen this all the way through Matthew, Jesus transcends even the Mosaic Torah, the Jewish law. Jesus doesn't break it. He transcends it. And in this case, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, gentlemen, permitted you to divorce your wives. But it was not so, and here we go again, from the beginning. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, apart from sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 in verse 4 for a moment, because it's important to notice. Jesus goes back and says that God created, from the beginning, male and female. And if you're thinking of Genesis chapter 2, you're saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, I think you might have it wrong, because God created Adam first, and then Eve was created from the rib of uh, Adam. But Jesus is remembering in chapter 1, Where, and chapter 1 kind of trumps the Pentateuch. It stands outside the structure of the book of Genesis. And there it says, God created human beings in his image. Male and female created he them. And then he gives them dominion over everything, both the man and the woman. And in chapter 1, they're created together, as it were. They're given dominion together, as it were. And so Jesus goes back to that and says, from the beginning they have been male and female. So according to Genesis 1, male and female are as old as creation itself. And Jesus pictures things, Genesis 1-wise, because he wants to elevate the status of women here who were on the losing end of the divorce deal. There was no appeal process. If you put too much salt in the stew and you were out, you were out. The men were running the show and the women had no recourse. Jesus goes back and he says, this is nuts, you guys. From the beginning, God created them, male and female. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. In Genesis 1, it wouldn't occur for the man to dominate the woman or the woman to dominate the man. Together, they have dominion over the animals and over everything else. But then to get to the marriage issue, to drive home his point, Jesus goes to Genesis chapter 2. And he cites that passage at the end when it says, For this reason, a man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. I couldn't help but cite it because it's one of my favorite verses. I just want to go back to it. Um, I hope I got it. Yeah, it's on page nine. The first one under relevant passages. Excuse me. The man is lonely. He's been looking around the world and and there's just nobody who is kind of his counterpart. And finally, God creates a woman. And when the man wakes up from his sleep and he sees her, and this is my translation, it's a little bit loose, but not all that loose, he says, this is far out, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then because he's still trying to get the female-male distinction thing, he actually uses the third-person masculine singular pronoun, which is why I have the S in front of he. It's, the significance of femaleness is dawning on him. And he begins by saying, he will be called woman. Uh, I guess it's now a she, because she was extracted from man. And then comes the passage which Jesus cites, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and attach to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The word attached there is the word dabak, which means cling to. Uh, we had a kind of a colloquial expression in our family where we, we talked about marriage as somebody glomming on to somebody else, you know. I think the two of them are going to glom on to one another, and it's just kind of like, you know, you drape your arms over the other and you, 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 you hook up. Um, in, in Greek, it's translated with a word that goes with gluing or welding. The two literally become flesh. They're stuck together. And by citing Genesis 1 in the first place and restating from the beginning, Jesus is saying that they are such from the beginning. So to divorce is to, I don't know, know, cut somebody in two. Um, It has that kind of a a sense to it. Now, because we live in the culture that we do, I think it's probably worth really noting just quickly that there are some people who point out the fact that Adam is androgynous. And uh, androgynous, what is that? It means that, The uh, the theory goes that before Eve was created, Adam wasn't male. He was kind of a combination of male and female. Um, And so you have this idea that you have Adam, and then you've got um, man and woman, both derived from Adam. And this can play into challenging, I think, the distinction between male and female in some way. But I want you to notice verses 21 to 23. And I've I've translated the words for man there because you'll see that that doesn't fit. The man, Adam, said, this is far out, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, Isha, because she was extracted from Ish. Um, This is not Adam, Ish, and Isha. This is Adam. And then Isha is extracted from Ish. In other words, if the logic was to fit, Uh, the second word for man would be Adam again. Um, And then Adam, by the way, continues to exist even after the uh, the surgery on both Adam and Eve. But there nonetheless is a hint of this to preserve the idea, I think, of male and female being in the mind mind of God from the beginning. So that's Jesus' ethic. It was not so from the beginning. One commentator has written on the nature of marriage as follows. The joining of a man and woman is so profound that the joining creates a third reality in the world. One flesh marriage. The persons we meet in the course of the day are, to be sure, whole individuals. But many of them are also one flesh with another whole individual. In such a manner that in some mysterious way, a third reality is also present. The apostle argues against sexual promiscuity from the creation-rooted truth. Physical union means metaphysical communion. Sexual intercourse delivers a spiritual interconnection so deep that it should be entered only when there are the strong undergirding foundations of spiritual faith and biblical marriage. And then as if he's jumped into the 21st century, he says, hooking up then is profoundly disintegrating. My friends, this is good for everybody. This is good for the family. This is good for men. It's good for women in particular. Sue Johnson, who is the uh, kind of architect of, um, it's either emotion-focused therapy or emotionally-focused therapy. There's a distinction somehow, and it has to do with a turf war over a certain method of, um, of, of therapy. But it's, it's, a, it's a marriage counseling theory. And Sue Johnson, um, uh, who um, has written several books, which in many ways I would commend, she has this idea that um, sex and bonding have everything to do with security and she says that that for a woman in particular uh, to enjoy uh, having sex there needs to be a bond it can't be just willy-nilly you know a, a a fling this is a hollywood lie that gets perpetuated over and over again there needs to be security she uses the analogy of a zip line and she says uh, if you go on a zip line between two trees, you're only saying, we, if the zip line is there, if the zip line is not there, you're going, ah, and you're falling and crashing on the ground. Well, folks, secular people are saying the same thing as the Bible is saying here, that within the bonds of marriage, there is a liberty and, uh, and, and just a richness that comes with sexual expression. And the threat of divorce um, impairs that. And we live in a real world, and Jesus does does acknowledge that sexual immorality constitutes an exception. So he he uses that because in the case of sexual immorality, that bond has been entered into with someone else, and that that jeopardizes that jeopardizes the bond. My friends, marriage is in; easy divorce is out. This isn't the place to talk about cases where more marriage, where divorce might be allowed, but I. And where it might not be, that's a lengthy discussion. Jesus keeps the bar very, very high. And that ideal is to be held forth. I mean, this is a kingdom ethic where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless you're perfect, you haven't met my standard. And so the standard is very, very high. Marriage is important. Friends, these are the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is here where Jesus Christ has free reign and where the Holy Spirit abides. But the kingdom of heaven is yet to come, and in the meantime, it's messy. So if you are, if you are divorced or have been affected by divorce um, as you're sitting here this afternoon, I just want you to know that there is grace and forgiveness. We've already seen in this passage itself that where there's a mistake, God can redeem it. And God loves you. He hates divorce, but he loves you. And he loves your partner. And he longs for you to be restored. And don't let anyone regard you as a second-class citizen for having gone through a divorce. If you have and it's your fault, you need to repent of whatever it was that you did and confess. And the white, the, the, the slate is wiped clean. The good news is always good news for fallen sinners who name their wrong, confess it, and then seek a fresh start with the help of the Holy Spirit and the regenerating power that comes with a relationship with God. Okay, well, let's move then to the second category, which is singles are in. It begins in verse 10 when Jesus says, or when the disciples say to him, the disciples kind of wake up and they say, wow, we thought that the Jewish practice was pretty normal. You know, you could marry, divorce, not a big deal. If it doesn't work out, just you know, give her a certificate and off she goes. They say to him, well, if this is the case with a man and a woman, it's better not to marry like whoo, after all, this is challenging stuff. You've been married more than, I don't know, three weeks. You probably noticed that every once in a while, there's a bit of a challenge, right? Uh, one person has noted that um, the discussion of divorce and marriage comes in the passage where Jesus talks about bearing your cross. You're on the way to, uh, to crucifixion Hill in, in, uh, in Calvary. It's not, it's not easy. And so Jesus seems to take this quick comment that people offer in verse verse 10, and then he says to them, well, not everyone accepts this matter, except those to whom it's given. And I think here's an affirmation. This is the bottom line. This is an affirmation of the meaningfulness and the dignity and the honor that comes with staying single, exemplified by Jesus himself. Because after all, if you're to give up everything for the kingdom, well, wait a minute, you just signed a lifelong contract with your spouse. There's a certain amount of commitment that comes with that. So um, there's a certain tension there. It's a creative tension. It doesn't mean that marriage is a bad thing. But Jesus is saying, well, wait a minute. If you're single, um, this, is, this, is, this is okay. Uh, we're, we're talking about a kingdom ethic here. And, and Paul later advocates uh, the, uh, the value of being single. There's a certain freedom and liberty that comes with it that can serve the kingdom's purposes. And then he goes and discusses eunuchs. And he says there are eunuchs who from birth by their mother were such. So some people are not able to, um, to, to have um, sexual relations by virtue of the way they were born. And then he has a second and a third category. And the second is people who have dis, who have um, been made eunuchs at the hands of men. That probably means they've kind of made a commitment that they're, that they're just not going to get married. And then in the case of the third one where eunuchs make themselves eunuchs on account of the kingdom of the heavens, This probably isn't literally emasculation, although that was practiced in the early church. People think that it's just kind of a a reference to people who are living, um, deciding not to be married. And it's as though you have decided not to reproduce. And therefore, um, you you are kind of infertile by virtue of not having a union. Jesus says there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs on account of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it folks if you are single you're in a place of honor, you are not some kind of a spare, you are not an incomplete person, you are a whole person who's following the example of Jesus. And the reason why eunuchs are mentioned here and not just singles is it's probably to push the envelope because eunuchs uh, were um, extraordinarily kind of bizarre single people and the whole idea is not to sort of dignify singleness, although it is dignified. But in the case of the upside down kingdom, it's dignified by kind of being made little of. Um, and so the, the, the semi-derogatory term eunuch is being used in the same way that someone is being called little or someone is being called a child. It is in effect, um, a kind of a reverse compliment. Then we come, if we will, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the third category, uh, which is uh, children are on get this children were brought to him in verse 13 that he might lay hands on them and pray but the disciples rebuked them i'm probably the only one in the room apart from robin guinness who i saw come out who remembers wc fields he was a kind of a a comedian and uh, he was known for saying i hate children he hated children and there was kind of a big joke about his hatred of children this is what it was like in the first century. You know, it's okay for Jake and Ambrose to have that darling little child, but, you know, better, better seen and not heard was the theory. Um, and uh, thank goodness that Jesus has taught us to reverse that. So Jesus says, after the disciples rebuke them, let the children come. He says, and I've translated it as literal as I could in verse 14. Jesus said, permit the children, even stop preventing them. This is a, uh, an, an imperative in the present tense. I think I got the tense right there, Samuel this time. I'm sure I do, in fact. Um, Even stop preventing them to come to me, for of such ones is the kingdom of heaven. And having placed hands on them, he departed from there. Once again, Jesus dignifies uh, these people of very little status. Uh, They're not power brokers. And he says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. If you're climbing the corporate ladder in the contemporary culture, um, you are climbing the ladder in the corporate culture. And um, you are are undoubtedly doing well by the world's standards. But that can keep you from entering the kingdom of heaven if there's an element of pride and sophistication and self-righteousness that comes with it. It was the people who knew that they needed a doctor to Jesus, the physician and the people who think they're healthy, didn't have any time for Jesus. So if you were a kind of a, a self-made person, you know, like Frank uh, Frank's on, um, you know, I did it my way um, regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention um, I did it. I did it my way, um, your way and the highway is not the way of the kingdom. Way of the kingdom comes by creating a community like the one we have here, where people serve one another, where people honor one another, where people elevate the dignity of others, where we regard others as more important than ourselves. It's an upside down kingdom that leads to the cross. And after the cross, there's resurrection and eternal life. An upside down kingdom with great cost at times, but enormous gains. May God help us to have that kind of an ethic in our church and in our home life to his glory. Amen.